Thank you for the privilege of opening the book of God to the people of God here at Southwestern in this chapel service. Uh, you know, I was an MDiv student here 50 years ago, and I made chapel a real priority of my life every week. In fact, I look back over five decades of ministry, and I can look back to two or three of those chapel services that became defining moments in my life. When I heard truth and applied truth to my life that I heard over there in Truett Chapel that set a direction and a course of the ministry that I had received from the Lord. So I want to encourage you to make chapel a real priority in your life. I always love preaching here in chapel. In fact, I'm so old, I've preached in chapel under the last five presidents of the university, six counting Dr. Dockery now. <clears throat> Uh, and uh, I, I like to come back to there was one verse of Scripture that I had jumped from the pages of Scripture into my heart when I was a student, an MDiv student here those five decades ago. And this one verse I've stayed tethered to over the years of ministry that God has given me. Periodically, at least once or twice a month, I would come back to this verse and ask myself four questions that I learned from this verse back there as an MDiv student. And I have stayed tethered to this verse my whole life. I've actually preached on it two or three times over the last 50 years here in chapel. I'm bringing it back today for a new generation because I think it's that important. I know it is to me, and I trust it will be to you. It's almost a parenthetical statement. <clears throat> that Paul makes in the midst of his first recorded sermon. You know, Peter's first recorded sermon was there in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Paul's first recorded sermon is at Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13. And in verse 36, in the midst of that sermon, he pulls David as an illustration. And in verse 36, he says that David served God's purpose in his own generation, and fell asleep. And you know, my prayer is today that 20 or 30 years from now, uh, when I'm in that place we've been singing about, heaven, and you're out there ministering somewhere, that you will look back on this service as a defining moment in your life when God spoke to you at the point of your need and that you will incorporate these four questions <clears throat> into your life and the ministry you have received from the Lord. And the reason I say the ministry you have received from the Lord, there's a difference in an achieved ministry and a received ministry. You know, an achieved ministry seeks the applause and the amen of men. A received ministry seeks the applause and the amen of God. An achieved ministry may succeed even though it fails. A, a received ministry may fail in the eyes of men, though it succeeds in the eyes of God. You know, Paul talked about taking heed to the ministry we have received from the Lord in Colossians. There in Acts 20, when he leaves uh, Ephesus, he calls upon them to, to take heed to the ministry they have received from the Lord. So I pray this might be a moment in your life when you look back 
and that you too might find a verse like this, if not this one, to stay tethered to throughout the days and months and years of ministry that God gives you wherever that calling may take you. David, it says in verse 36, served God's purpose in his own generation. Here's the first question I continually ask myself across the decades. Am I a servant? Am I a servant? Look, of all the things that Paul could have said about David, he was an incredible administrator. He was an unbelievable motivator of men, the way he gathered those motley crowds at Ziglag and other places and how they followed him. He was a poet. He, was, he had a heart after God's own heart. He was a, an incredible leader. He built a great army. He, be, he led his nation to become a world power in its day. Uh, he, he, was an, he was the greatest fundraiser ever. He raised all the money to build the temple. And of all the things that could be said about David, what did Paul say here? David served. That's what he said. David served. Am I a servant? You see, David knew <clears throat> that the way up was down and the way down was up. And it says he served. But, but how did he serve? As you know, we have many words in the New Testament that describe the word servant or describe what it means to serve. Does, does it mean here that he was a diakonos, a foot washer? Uh, what, a, what a beautiful thing to be said of us that that we had that spirit of a foot washer, that, that we were those who liked to wash people's feet when they came to a feast or a banquet, and, and we took that place of servanthood. Or does it mean that he was a doulos, a bond servant? The doulos, if you remember, uh, was one who had come to the end of their tenure and were now free to go and do whatever they wanted to do. They looked over everything the world had to offer. And you know what they said? My master is greater to me than anything this world has to offer. And so the doulos was taken, and remember his ear was placed on a, on a pole and an awl was taken, and he had a mark made in his ear, that, that stigmata. Paul said, I bear in my body those marks. That mark of the doulos. So you know what happened? When people see him walking down the street, you know what they say? And they see that mark, they say, my, what a wonderful master he must serve. He could have gone anywhere, done anything, and he chose that one who first chose him. But neither of those are the words that Paul uses here when he describes David's servant-hearted spirit. He uses a compound word here from a preposition that means under <clears throat> and a verb that means to row. And he says David was an under rower. We've all seen pictures. If you've ever taken a, if you've ever been to Athens, you sail out of the port of Athens. They've got they've got a big makeup of one of those great big wooden Greek sailing vessels. They have those oars that come out the sides. Most of us have seen them. And those <clears throat> those under rowers, that hupairetes, he he would be down underneath the deck, chained to those oars, rowing. And that's the spirit. David said. Uh, that Paul said that David had, that he was an under rower, that he didn't have to be on deck all the time barking orders, that he took his place there as an under rower. Remember the conversation in the upper room <clears throat> the night before the crucifixion? 
when you really stand back and think about this, it's almost unbelievable. The disciples got into an argument. You remember what it's about? Which of them would be the greatest in the coming kingdom? Can you believe that after three and a half years? And at that very critical moment, they get in an argument over which of them would be the greatest. And about that time, our Lord stood up from the table, girded himself with a towel, and the greatest among them became the servant of all. And he began to wash their feet. We're never more like Jesus than when we're a servant. As you go in ministry, ask yourself that question, am I a servant? Do I have a servant's heart? When I was pastor of First Baptist Church, Dallas, I came there at a critical time in the life of the church. And as I was praying, as I came there, uh, 1 Kings 12, 7, God just gave to me as a verse. I put that verse on my phone, on my credenza. Every time I took a phone call, it was there. I, I, I put that verse over the, the where, and back in those days, you used a key to start your car. And I put it right over where I, had my key in my car. I had it on the mirror at home where I shaved every morning. I had it everywhere. I had it in my wallet. I looked at that verse every day. It was, the, it was the advice the elders gave to Rehoboam that unfortunately he didn't take when the kingdom divided. And, and, and they said, if you'll be a servant to them and serve them and speak good words to them, they'll be your servants forever. Think about that. You know, when I came here to Southwestern, I, I was a pre-law student over at TCU. <clears throat> was called, I was about taking the LSAT summer before my senior year. Right before I took them, God called me to ministry. I went ahead and finished and got a business administration degree there and came straight here to the seminary. I'd just been saved two or three years, just been called to ministry. Came here to the seminary so hot with a heart to preach the gospel, nowhere to preach. Now, if you can, if you can believe there was such a day, when I was here as an MDF student, we didn't have any mobile phones. There, was no, there, were no, there were no laptops. There were no computers. There were no iPads. There was no Google search. When we did research, we had to go over here to the library and pull out all those dissertations that had been done, get a hernia, carry them back to the desk in the library to do research. We had none of that. No laptop computing. And I, I would go, I'd go over, the, over to Naylor Student Center, and we had mimeograph machines in those days. Most of you have never heard of them. But they had that old purple ink, and you, you, I, can, I can smell it right now <clears throat> as I'm talking about it. You'd mimeograph those things off on a sheet and print out a sheet. And I'd go over there, and I'd, I'd look over there, and I'd see, here's a guy I was in evangelism class. He's preaching a youth revival over here next weekend. Here was another guy that I was in a class. He was preaching somewhere and all these flyers were over there in the students. I had no place to preach. And I, I got back and I got in my car after class that day and I drove over to East Fort Worth. My pastor, Fred Swank, who led me to Christ. And I, I went in his office. I said, preacher, look, God's called me to preach. All these other guys are preaching somewhere. I don't have any place to preach. Feeling sorry for myself. He said, look, he said, I'm busy. He said, I got, I got more important things. He said, look, let me just give you this advice. Go be faithful over little things. God will make you ruler over greater things. Boy, that ticked me off. <laughs> what compassion. 
I got in my car. If you drive over there, it's on 4400 Panola Street on the east side, right? You can still see those two strips of rubber where I peeled out of that parking lot. I got up around Lancaster Street and I turned left. You be faithful over little things and God will make you ruler over greater things. I passed a nursing home. I'd passed it 10,000 times. I never saw it till that day. And I found myself pulling in it. And I went in and met the person that ran it. They let me start coming over there on Sunday afternoons at 2 o'clock and preaching to those old folks. I got back in the car and I drove downtown where, near where the, old, where the Omni Hotel is, downtown Fort Worth today. Used to be the Union Gospel Mission used to sit there. I went in there and met a man named Brother Williams who ran it. He started letting me come over on Tuesday nights and preach to those people on Skid Row. I started being faithful over little things, being a servant. And 50-plus years later, I can tell you I've never had a week go by. I didn't have numerous opportunities to preach the gospel of Christ. So ask yourself this question. <clears throat> Am I a servant? Come back to that. Make sure you keep that servant's heart and, and, and serve them. Here's a second question you need to ask yourself. Do I have a sense of calling? Do I have a sense of calling? Listen to what he said. David served what? The people? What, what did David serve? God's, he served God's boule, God's calling God's purpose for his life, God's irrevocable will for his life. That's what he called. That's what he served. He had this sense of calling. I want to tell you something. When you get out in ministry, there'll be days when the only thing that will keep you on the road going down to the church house is the call of God on your life to that place and to those people. Do I have a sense of calling. So important that we maintain that, that we know that God has called us. How do you find the will of God, the call of God? I think you begin with desire. That's the first word, desire. I do not believe God will call anybody to do something he doesn't give them a desire to do. Every once in a while I hear somebody say, oh, God called me to ministry. I don't want to do it. I don't, I don't believe that. Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean what your little old heart desires you'll get. It means he will implant those desires in you that are in your heart. So you begin with desire. What's the second word? Opportunity. If you have a desire and you've got an opportunity, you're well on your way to finding God's will. Now, you may have a desire to be the next Billy Graham, and you may go out there and find somebody to help you rent AT&T Stadium. Maybe 30 of your friends will show up and hear you preach. So that's not God's will for you. Why? Because you, you don't have an opportunity that's coupled with it. But you have a desire that's coupled with an opportunity. Then what do you do? You keep walking and trust God if it's not his will to shut the door. This is exactly, you need a good biblical illustration of this. Acts 16, Paul's second missionary journey. What gets him to what we're going to be preaching on the rest of this year, uh, this spring in chapel, the book of Philippians, what got him to Philippi, to Philippi as we call it, 
and the great revival broke out there. He had the desire. He had the opportunity. In Acts 16, what did he do? He goes to Asia, but the Bible says what? The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go in. There was no rebuke. He, the door was closed. So then he goes to Bithynia. And what happens? He can't get in. The door's closed. He doesn't stop. He keeps moving. He gets to Troas. And what happens in, in, in Acts 16, verse 9? He, he hears the Macedonian call. Come over here and help us. The call of God to a specific place. And verse 10 says, concluding that this is the, was the will of God, he sailed straight to Samothrace and on to Philippi where the great revival broke out. Concluding, this was the word, is the word. It all come together like a sweater being knitted. It doesn't look like anything. You turn it over and there it is. A jigsaw puzzle and, and these pieces, it doesn't look like anything but a piece here and a piece there and a piece there and it all comes together. That's the way it is with the will, with the will of God in your life. That it all comes together. Acts 13, where Paul's Pisidian tells us so much about the call of God on our life. Look, look, at the, look, look back to, to verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius, and it goes on and names all these people. Then verse 2, and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. There, there are four things in that verse 2 that, that you need to see about the call of God on your life. First of all, it's personal. Separate for me, he said, Barnabas and Saul. He's already mentioned a lot. There are a lot of people in that church at Antioch. But Barnabas and Saul, this call was personal. God still calls specific people to specific places for specific purposes. The call of God is personal in your life. Second, it's purposeful. Set apart for me, Aphorizo. Put, Take Paul and take Barnabas and put them over here apart from everyone else. That's what he does with you and your calling. He sets you apart from everyone else. It's purpose. There's a purpose in God's call for you on your life. It's personal. It's purposeful. It's practical. For what? For the work. I want to tell you something. Ministry is work. And if you're walking in the spirit, you're not going to be wearing out the seat of your pants. You're going to be wearing out the soles of your shoes. It's work. It's practical. And it's providential. Look, to which I have called them. The call of God. That's what David served. Ask yourself, you need to ask yourself all through your life, do I still have that sense of calling? Because you do if he's called you. There's something really important about it in verse 3 and 4 here in Acts 13. Look what happened next. After fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. S-E-N-T. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. S-E-N-T. Well, now who sent them? Because Acts 3 says the church in Antioch sent them. Acts 4 says the Holy Spirit sent them. How's it work with the call of God on our lives to a place? If you are reading that in your Greek New Testament, you immediately see these are two diametrically different words used to translate our English word sent in verse 3 and verse 4. In verse 3, 
We have in Acts 13, 3 is the word apaluo, to let go, to release. Ironically, the same word that's used here in Acts 13, 3 is used in Acts 3, 13, where it talks about a prisoner who's released and let go from prison. What did the church at Antioch do? They released them. They let them go. The word in verse 4 is that strong word with that strong pre, uh, prefix in front of it the, 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 to mean thrust out, to be sent out. So what happens to you in your calling? It is the Holy Spirit who sends you out. And what does the church do? They recognize it and they release you to do the work of the ministry. Now what happens in some churches? Sometimes churches call people, send people that the Holy Spirit has never sent. And sometimes the Holy Spirit sends somebody to a church, but the church won't recognize it and release them to do the work of the ministry. But you find a place where God, the Holy Spirit, sends you in your calling. And you find a church who recognizes that and releases you to do the work of ministry that God has called you to do. And you'll see the power of God come up on that place. So here's the first question. Am I a servant? David served. Am I uh, do I have a sense of calling? You better have a sense of calling on your life and ministry. Here's the third question. Do I recognize the difference in a first century message and 21st century methodology? Look what it says. David served God's purpose in his own generation. Thayer says that's a time span of about 30 years. He was contemporary in what he did, in his methodology. You know, I've lived so long, I've seen culture change in my life. I was a little boy in the 50s. We were such a grateful and thankful culture here. Those boys had just come back from Vietnam, I mean, from uh, the European War Theater, World War II, and the, in the South Pacific, my dad fought on Okinawa and Guam. They came back, married their high school sweethearts, and started that big baby boom, and church people came to church in the 50s like they never had before. We were a grateful and a thankful people. And as always, cultures reflected in the music, and, and uh, Doris Day had a big hit song that day, Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. That was the that was a culture there in the 50s. Then came the 60s. Ushered in with the assassination of President Kennedy and, and, and Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. And the culture shifted to become more introspective. And Peter, Paul, and Mary had the biggest hit song in the 60s when they sang, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind, all those moral absolutes we thought we had. Now in this, now in this introspective culture, we, we, we didn't find them. And the church was struggling in the 60s to find ways to, to reach them. And the great Jesus movement came about near the end. Of, then came the 70s. And again, the culture changed, ushered in with Vietnam and Roe v. Wade and all these things, Watergate, that moved the culture from being introspective to skeptical. And again, it's reflected in the music. Billy Joel, the old piano man, he sang, only the good die young. Skepticism infiltrated the thinking processes. And the church continues to strive to do. And, and I don't have time to continue to illustrate that through the decades. But the point is, you can't reach people today in the same way we did in the 50s. 
This is why Jesus said, men don't take new wine and put it into old wine skins. Those skins that are brittle and have lost their elasticity because that new wine, the gases are expanding and it's expanding. He said, men take new wine and put it into new skins. And so they're both preserved. The wine is the message. It never changes. The skins are the methods which ought to always be changing. In ministry, ask yourself this question. Am I conscious that I can't go in there and use flannel graphs anymore when I've got three-dimensional computer graphics to translate the gospel of Jesus Christ without changing the message? Now, the problem comes, a lot of people try to make the gospel more palatable by changing the message, but it never changes. It's a healthy tension for us in ministry through the years. And I I must hasten on. And there's a final question. First, ask yourself this question. Am I a servant? Do I have a sense of calling? Do I recognize the difference in the first century message that never changes and a 21st century methodology that must always be changing to reach new people for Christ? And here's the final question. Am I keeping an eternal purpose? Do I have an eternal purpose? Listen to what it says. David served God's purpose in his own generation and fell asleep. That's just a euphemism that means he dropped dead. He died. We're we're dealing with people who are dying, who are going to drop dead. And the writer of Hebrews, whether it was Apollos or Luke or Paul or whomever you think it might have been, said in chapter 9 that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment. Am I keeping an eternal purpose about what I'm doing? Do I recognize and realize that where Jesus took the gospel was not inside the walls of this chapel or inside the walls of my church, but outside, out there where the people are? in need of the message of the gospel. Outside where I was when another 17-year-old witnessed to me of Christ out there at the public school's gym after a basketball game. Where was Jesus? Jesus wasn't born in the sterile confines of a beautiful hospital somewhere, but where? Outside, out there underneath the stars where shepherds had easy access to that cave and that manger. He wasn't baptized in a beautiful baptistry like's out there in that forest, but where? Outside, out there, down there in the Jordan Valley where John the baptizer was baptizing. He didn't preach his great sermons from a beautiful pulpit somewhere, the carved oak pulpit or mahogany pulpit, but where? Outside, out there. He used the bow of a boat one time for his pulpit. He was always outside. He was always out there. He didn't heal the sick and the beautiful hospitals that are around it. But we're outside out there where he preached life's greatest lessons. He didn't do it from a lectern in some high-tech conference room, but where? Outside, out there. And he talked about things like lilies of the field and birds of the air. He was always out there where the people are. He, he, he didn't pray in a stained glass, beautiful prayer chapel somewhere, but where? Outside, out there, neat those old olive trees in Gethsemane's garden. And when it came time to die, 
He didn't die in a starch shirt with an expensive tie on a gold cross on some beautiful mahogany communion table in some high steeple stained glass church. But outside, out there where people were cursing and gambling and sweating, and that's where he told us to take the gospel. Do I have an eternal purpose about this calling of God on my life to ministry? So let me close by saying, be a servant. You're never more like Jesus than when you're washing someone's feet. Be a submissive servant. You didn't choose this. God called you and set you apart from everybody else for a task. Somewhere there's a job for you to do that no one can do like you can do. Be contemporary in your approach to the gospel without changing its message and keep that eternal purpose. And as always, the Lord Jesus is our example. A servant, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Did he have a sense of calling? Hear him at Sychar when they brought lunch to him. And he said, no. He said, my meat, the thing that sustains me is to do the will of him who sent me while there's still time. He had that sense of calling. Did he, did he, did he, was he contemporary? He changed everything. He changed the way of worship. He changed the day of worship. And did he keep an eternal purpose? Listen to what he said in Luke 19, 10. I came to seek and to save those who are lost. So I close with a final question for you. Is the purpose of God being done in your life. Are you serving what? Above everything else, serve God's purpose, God's call for your life. Somebody's to be reached for Christ that no one can reach like you can reach. Somewhere there's a job for you to do that no one can do quite like you can. And someday, one day, some might pass your grave. And what a, what a tribute to look on your tombstone and have it say, he served God's purpose. She served God's purpose in her own generation and fell asleep. Count Zinderdorf 400 plus years ago said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. David served God's purpose in his own generation and fell asleep. What better thing to be said of you and me?